Hi, everybody. Elias Krim here back uh, at Dorothy's Place with my podcast and co-host, Pete Davis. Hi, Pete. Hello. We have a special guest today, a guy I've been reading for a while um, with great delight and fascination, and finally now have got him on the podcast. Adam K. Webb is a professor of political science at the John Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies, and he is now the co-director of their Hopkins Nanjing Center, um, although he is not speaking from China today, but uh, from Devon, England. Welcome, Adam. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, you know, I, you're one of those guys uh, where your personal background does matter, I would think, um, for some kinds of writers and intellectuals, it doesn't particularly matter. But tell us a little bit about growing up on multiple continents, I take it. Well, I have a fairly international uh, family background, half British, half American. Uh, growing up, we spent time in England and Spain and the US. And I mean, after that, I went through you know, undergraduate at, at Harvard. I did my PhD in politics at uh, Princeton. I taught for a bit at Harvard after that. Um, I think unlike a lot of people in those kinds of academic um, trajectories, I always rather gravitated back to the rest of the world. Uh, I've been based at uh, the Hopkins Nanjing Center, which is uh, Johns Hopkins University's uh, site in, in Nanjing, China. Since 2008, I've been on the faculty um, there. I took over as co-director uh, recently. Uh, apart from the time that I've spent in China over the last uh, 11 years, I've also done fieldwork at various points in uh, various corners of the world, everywhere from the highlands of Peru to Egypt to Kenya to Pakistan. In fact, mm -hmm. for the last seven or eight years, I haven't actually spent most of the time in, in any one uh, country. Um, and I think, you know, despite this kind of nomadic globetrotting uh, existence, uh, unlike a lot of globetrotters, Today, I'm quite deeply traditionalist in my own sympathies, so I often feel quite at home in places which are often seen as being rather marginal in the modern world, whether it's in the highlands of the Andes in, in Peru or in this little village in rural Devon that I, I take refuge in. For, for <laughs> um, so I, I think between my personal experience and my intellectual interests, a lot of what I'm interested in is looking for cosmopolitanism in unlikely places. In other words, what kinds of insights, what kinds of um, perspectives can we get from tradition that can shed light on global questions and global futures? Mm -hmm. uh, Adam, were there any cosmopolitans in your own family as you were growing up particularly? Um, well, my, my father was an academic. My, my mother also has been very internationally minded, lived uh -huh. in, in various countries. So it's always been, I think, part of our personal experience as well. Mm -hmm. You know, Pete and I are fans of Front Porch Republic, and I think it was on FPR that I first became aware of your work, which is interesting because um, we wouldn't necessarily associate Front Porch Republic with cosmopolitanism. <laughs> so you're, you're a kind of a vanguard uh, effort there. Um, but how did you come across Front Porch Republic, by the way? Um, this was around the same time that my second book was coming out, which was dealing with alternative development questions in uh, Peru. And it, it did have a, 
a strongly localist element to it. Mm -hmm. So I ended up writing a few pieces for um, Front Porch Republic, and I, I contributed again a number of times over the years, not, not so much recently. Um, I, I think what you say is, is true. People often think of FPR as being very localist in its orientation. And I, I think that is one element of my work. At the same time, I also think that a lot of these localities are facing similar issues around the world. So some of what I've written about on Front Porch Republic um, over the years is trying to put those local challenges that traditionalists are facing in a more global light and, and to think also of ways of linking uh, people together in these communities uh, hmm. across the world, both in terms of social networks and thinking about political visions that would let them defend their values in a global space. Mm -hmm. Now, could we get a definition here that might be useful for listeners, which is, you know, when you when we think of cosmopolitanism, um, like a, a vulgar thought about cosmopolitanism would be, to use your words that you've used um, in your work, it's iPods in every pocket, Lexuses under every olive tree, <laughs> and a nightclub on every corner. <laughs> and yet um, you are detaching cosmopolitanism from, you know, this atomistic modernism, uh, consumerism, capitalism. Um, so what, wh how, how do you detach them? How do you preserve a de the, the baby and throw away the bathwater in cosmopolitanism? Part of what I, I've done in my writing is, is try to contrast two very different understandings of what it means to be a cosmopolitan. And the, the kind of cosmopolitanism that you're, you're mentioning, the kind of liberal version of globalization we, we see today, it's almost like a, a convivial dinner party where people bring their various experiences and superficial differences and think about ways of you know, coexisting with one another. They might savor some differences on a superficial level, but a lot of it amounts to what I think Alan Bloom called self-ironical niceness. In other words, <laughs> you're tolerant of other people, but you don't take either your own beliefs or whatever beliefs they may have that seriously. And we see this in the, the social realities of our time, whether it's global consumer culture, whether it's certain thin understandings of liberal human rights. This is very thin layer is what most people think of as the cosmopolitan common ground across societies today. Now, one of the, the flip sides of that is that traditionalists are not seen as having much of a place in that, right? And we see a kind of false choice today where to be a cosmopolitan, to be a cosmopolitan to many people means to be a liberal at war with tradition and to be someone who takes tradition seriously means hunkering down in a kind of defensive uh, provincialism. Um, and we see this carrying over on a strategic level as well. Liberal cosmopolitans, wherever they are in the world, tend to see themselves as branch offices of a global project, while traditionalists tend to see each separate battle as their own and tend to either not be interested in traditionalists elsewhere in the world or even to look askance at them or to see them with some uh, kind of suspicion. So I think this is a false choice between cosmopolitanism and tradition that we're presented with, and I think both sides often take for, for granted. So what I try to do in my work in uh, Deep Cosmopolis, uh, for example, is to try and recover another way of finding common ground among civilizations. And in Deep Cosmopolis, I look back at encounters among the major civilizations of Eurasia since ancient times, and I find some very um, thought-provoking examples where people look for common ground in the substance of those traditions, in the virtues of other people they were encountering. So it's not this 
thin bedrock of rights and consumerism and, and so on. It's actually taking traditions seriously and finding real points of contact between them. So it's recovering that older and I think richer kind of cosmopolitanism that sits at the center of a lot of what I've written about in recent years. Hmm. Um, Adam, I want to make sure we tie this to um, your experiences in um, Peru uh, and Pomatambo and, and the economic dimension, the, the anti-neoliberal dimension to this amazing project. I wondered if you could say a little bit about uh, Pomatambo and, and that village, uh, its position being caught between two forces when you arrived there, or at least within recent history, it was between two forces. Yeah, well, this was my second book, A Path of Our Own and Andean Village and Tomorrow's Economy of Values. It came out in English in 2009 and in Spanish in 2011. But the history of the project actually goes back um, quite a long time before that. The first time I went to this village in the highlands in Peru was in 1995 when I was, it was three weeks before my 20th birthday when I first set foot there and I was working on a senior thesis as an undergraduate at Harvard. And I went there initially to understand local people's experiences and perspectives on their experiences during the civil war between the Peruvian state and the Maoist uh, guerrillas. And that mm. civil war lasted between 1980 and the mid 1990s. Um, 70,000 people died. About a third of the people in this tiny village uh, left to escape the violence, uh, left for the, the cities. Um, mm. So I first went there in 1995. I was struck by how people in the village felt that neither side of this conflict was really reflecting their own values and their own aspirations. Neither the Peruvian state, which was offering a kind of neoliberal market vision of selling off the communal lands, bringing a kind of corrosive individualism into the community and essentially wanting to enable peasants to prosper by turning them into something other than, than peasants. So, and, and that vision had not delivered the goods for them. The other side of that, the, the Maoist uh, guerrilla movement, which was um, uh, one of the most radical sort of left-wing movements um, in the world. This they is the shining path, right? This, the this is path. the shining path. It, it came out of a kind of Chinese cultural revolution era. Uh, Maoism, it saw itself as part of a global um, revolutionary struggle. But this movement also went into these villages and essentially wanted to break down all the traditional patterns of cooperation, break down the independence of the community. And it was pretty obvious that the vision was very similar to what happened in China, this very top heavy state, which would you know, um, suppress the, the, the traditions and the autonomy of, of the village. So uh, th this was what I um, was struck by the first time I was there in the mid 1990s. And then I ended up going back there you know, a number of times over uh, the next 15 years or so and did interviews several times and the book that came out of this was looking at the at the history of this village telling its own its own story from the, the ground up uh, but it was also putting this in the context of a much broader debate about what rural development is and yeah. what the place of peasants uh is in that process of modernization and what the, the, their place in the future uh can be and it taps into a, a long tradition of alternative economic thought for distributors like uh, Chesterton and, and mm -hmm. others, and thinking about ways that you can take the, the the virtues and the practices of traditional rural life and how you might be able to translate that into a more prosperous 
kind of economic base. So in the book, I actually lay out some ways of thinking about economic strategies uh, on the ground uh, in villages like that, ways of you know, creating networks of cooperative enterprises, ways of linking communities together, trying to scale up and, and, and get some of the benefits of an economy of scale without abandoning what makes those villages so precious to the people who, who live in them. Um, mm -hmm. I also look at the, the broader political debates and political um, context that any alternative would have to, to operate in. So it's, it's a very on the ground kind of story, but it's also a much broader debate about the place of these communities, whether in Peru or anywhere else in the world, in the future. Yeah, you use the phrase a pro-peasant economic strategy. Uh, that's, that's a hard thing to find. <laughs> it's true because as I said, the assumption is often that modernity basically means that those ways of life die out. But if you separate the, the essence of the way of life from its agricultural base, if you think about forms of cooperation, if you think about forms of local control of resources, if you think about um, ethically conscious ways of investing capital and, and, and creating this cycle of economic growth, I think there's a lot of insight that can come from traditional rural people's mm -hmm. uh, experience. Unfortunately, that's not a, a perspective which gets much of a hearing among those making policy and those controlling most capital in the world now. But if you look at the, the sheer number of communities like this, there are, I think, something like uh, 500,000 villages like this in a country the size of, of India. And if you think of mm -hmm. half of the world's population still being rural, I think there is a, a, a big social base there of people who, as one villager in Pomatambo put it, felt very much forgotten by policymakers. Yeah. As you talk about linking up uh, these these local traditions who are usually very separate and see all of their fights as local fights. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, um, it, it makes me think about something that Steve Bannon is trying to do. And I don't wanna, I don't, I'm not a fan of Steve Bannon. I don't think, I'm assuming you might not wanna associate with him, but one interesting thing about the right in America in the last 20 years is, you know, 20 years ago, it was the American cultural right fighting against the Islamic cultural right in on the world stage. You know, there's a clash of civilizations, but some kind of left, uh, some lefty critics would sometimes point out, you know, uh, the the Taliban and Bush's electoral base both are fighting modernity. You know, and um, and 20 years later, you have Steve Bannon who's rewritten the divide between globalists and nativists and you've actually you know i've seen some right-wing blogs say oh well you know we could learn a lot from sharia law you know or um and bannon going around the country trying to build uh you know nationalist a nationalist an international nationalist alliance against globalism and i'd love to hear your thoughts on that switch in the american right and also how you differ from kind of Bannonism or an international federation of nativists. I'm struck when I, when I hear you talking about what, what the, the right today is, is imagining in terms of cross-national um, alliances. Uh, and we certainly do see people like Bannon you know, speaking in Europe and, and trying to connect these sort of populist alt-right currents with each other across borders. One of the 
notable things about it is that it usually tends to be very much within one corner of the world. I don't think he really sees himself making common ground with people in the Middle East or Africa or South Asia or, or other places um, like that. So it's a, it's a limited scope um, kind of transnationalism that people like that are, are engaged in. Um, I was struck by hearing that though, because towards the end of the um, of a part of our own, the book on Peru, I do actually mention the idea of a traditionalist international. I point I out we have a kind of free market liberal international, which is essentially globalized, globalization as we see it today and the, the, the power centers of the world. Now, we've also seen all kinds of leftist internationals, whether communists, socialists, um, et cetera. I think there is room for a traditionalist international of sorts, which is you know, bringing together people from different civilizations, from different parts of the world who take those traditions seriously and are looking for common ground and trying to address common global um, questions. Um, as you, you know, hint at, obviously, my um, thinking about what the content of that is and the, the aim of that is is quite different from uh, Bannon and, and the alt-right. Um, one of those differences is that um, the kind of uh, long-range cooperation I'm talking about is much more society-centered. Um, one of the most valuable things about traditional ways of life is that they fragment power and they're very centered in society rather than state or market. Mm -hmm. um, so any uh, I think anyone who takes society seriously and tradition seriously needs to recognize that society does not stop at national borders, right? Some of the most vibrant kinds of traditional social networks and commitments that people have, including great world religions, cross borders. They transcend the nation state and they survive the vicissitudes of political life, political majorities, um, etc. Um, one of the most uh, alarming things about populism today is that it's actually very focused on the levers of political power and the lines on a map that go around political communities. And we see this with the, uh, the whole Brexit um, saga where the idea of taking back control did not mean local decentralization. It did not mean empowering civil society. It did not actually mean returning control to ordinary people in the rich texture of daily life. What it meant essentially was ordinary people voting at the ballot box using their identity as citizens of a state to seize the levers of political power and then exclude people who are outside that political community. So in a sense, it's a very modern statist political understanding of what taking back control mm. means. Yeah. And this is something which I think should unsettle any serious traditionalist. And I think we have seen a lot of sincere, you know, Catholics, a lot of sincere religious believers say that you know, religion is not national in scope, right? That this kind of solidarity across borders with uh, migrants, refugees, um, the sense of a broader um, trans-historical community that one is part of, but that is actually very important. I think this is what populists and people who have a kind of racialized understanding of nationalism are, are losing sight of. And they're essentially using the, the modern state as a very blunt instrument for reasserting their own dignity or their own power and so mm, on. Yep, yep. If, if, if all you're doing is using the ballot box and you're right, this one dimension of your identity as a citizen to try and take back control, often at the expense of people who are not part of that political community, it's a very, as I said, it's a very blunt instrument and I think it's losing sight of a lot of the 
real texture and value of society. Yeah. You know, Adam, in um, Beyond the Culture War, your book from 2006, you, you have um, a schema that I thought was just fascinating. And it had to do with the way in which today's global culture war is just the latest manifestation of this older struggle between what you call rival universalisms. And you, you use the plural ethoses. Uh, one of them is sort of the, the modernist thing you call atomism. And there are three others. I, I wonder if you could just very briefly describe each of those. I, I found them uh, fascinating and I've never seen this kind of taxonomy before. Yeah, well, this was my first book, which, as you say, came out in 2006, Beyond the Global Culture War. And basically, I was taking up three um, key questions in this, this book. One is, why has the liberal cultural vision of the world come to dominate? Um, second is, why does today's resistance against it fail? And third, how might those of a more traditionalist bent put together a more promising alternative, um, mm -hmm. both in terms of vision and, and strategy. And the way that I answer that question is by trying to tell a more universal story about what these clashes of values are about. And as you said, I um, look for building blocks which we see recurring across time and space, right? So certain um, clusters of values or self-understandings which we find in every civilization, every time period, and we find them interacting and and clashing with each other in, in various ways. Um, one of those is atomism, which is the self-understanding that I you know, argue triumphs with modern liberalism. Um, we also have three other ethoses. So one is um, I call demotic, which is basically the values of um, you know, traditional small communities, you know, peasants, um, other um, traditional communities like that. Um, perfectionist uh, is another, that's the cultivation of a kind of individual excellence, which could be aristocratic or mystical um, in nature. And the third is virtuocratic, which is, you know, clerics, the Confucian literati, those who have both a demanding set of virtues uh, that they're emphasizing, as well as a mission to engage uh, society. And essentially the story I tell is how um, atomism, which uh, I think inspires modern liberalism, always existed. It's not something that is new with modernity, but it was always quite marginal. And if we find, if we look in history, for examples of an atomist self-understanding, um, there are people like the sophists in ancient Greece, the legalists in ancient China, people like that. These were quite marginal and uh, largely kept in check in, in most pre-modern um, settings. Now, what happened in the modern era, I think, as the the scale of the global economy, the scale of global interactions um, uh, expanded greatly. Um, atomists essentially seized that opportunity to lay claim to a global space at the same time that they were you know, carrying through these deep uh, cultural and social transformations within uh, each society and each, each civilization. So uh, basically the book is putting you know, modern liberal globalization in that much longer term uh, historical context and it's telling a story of the the clashes and the, the ways in which uh, atomist, uh, this atomist self-understanding and its bearers outmaneuvered various kinds of resistance in modernity to uh, come into the kind of triumphant position that we see them in, in the present. And then, of course, I also make an argument uh, about how if you're looking for a universal alternative to this, you need to build on the other three ethoses and think about ways that they also can 
speak to a global audience and uh, lay claim to a, a global space. So it's a, it's a universal story about the rise of liberalism, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, let, let's see, I wanted to also, um, um, I mean, this, this is interesting that atomism, you, you have a sentence in, in the book, um, Levittown had to lead to Woodstock. They're on the same side of history. Yeah, I think this is part of the, the kind of story about how these cultural and social forces played out in modernity over the last 150, uh, 200 years. Um, that particular sentence was referring to the, the, the post-war period, basically how yeah. you know, after the 1940s, you have this period in which um, atomists and uh, demots, as I call them, this kind of popular communitarian ethos, you see a kind of um, alliance uh, taking shape there. And if you look at mass society, this kind of social flattening of the post-war period, a lot of this was about um, building a kind of modern national identity which would erode tradition uh, sufficiently, that it would create a kind of common ground which was beyond uh, you know, traditional small communities. It was speaking instead about membership in a national community which was you know, progressing economically, rising tide, lifting all boats, and so on. By the time you get to the 1960s and 1970s, you then get a kind of return to a raw individualism, uh, a kind of counter, uh, um, counterculture, uh, a greater um, embrace of the global space, a transcending of the nation state, and, and so on. So I'm, I'm basically making the argument that that kind of populist or, or, or national culture in the post-war period was a strategic phase. It was a phase in which traditional culture was broken down further. You have the rise of you know, meritocracy, and then you have a return to a kind of disembedded globalization uh, later on. What, what we see a lot of populists doing today when they want to reaffirm the nation state, essentially they're trying to go back to this kind of post-war social pact. They're trying to re-embed capitalism, re-embed consumer culture within uh, the nation state. And that was an earlier phase, which I think liberal atomists in general have transcended. I'm, I'm, since you've thought so much about uh, the, the virtues of tradition um, and the, the pains of, of modernity, I'd love to hear um, your response to this hope I have, which is that we can preserve, we can meld some of the liberatory aspects of modernity with some of the virtues and community of tradition. Because, you know, anytime, you know, if someone's overhearing us wax poetic about tradition, you know, they're, and saying all the pain of modernity or the counterculture or even Levittown, um, there's always the other side, which is, you know, if you're a woman, you're pretty happy about many aspects of modernity. If you're gay, you're pretty happy about many aspects of modernity. If you're, you know, a, a, a man who wants to enact, uh, you know, perform his gender in a different way, uh, even lightly without being uh, queer, if you're, um, if you just want to kind of organize your life in some different way than the tradition does, um, is there are examples of people doing that who have been able to preserve community virtues without, so is there a way that we can take the liberation that has come from modernism and rededicate ourselves, given the liberation, to uh, to some of these virtues of community and, and avoid, is there is there a liberatory non-atomism 
uh, that's possible. Um, this is one of the biggest questions of our time. So I'm not asking this as a, <laughs> as a small question, but um, as someone who's studied, uh, who's thought a lot about this, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on the possibility for, for modern community. Yes, I, I think that there are um, a lot of things in modernity that are valuable and that we should not discard. I think we need to be careful in how we think about what those are and, and what exactly is causing them, because that has important implications for what you can retain and what you need to do to, to retain it. Um, I mean, one of the things that modernity obviously has done is greatly expanded um, horizons. I mean, the fact that people can feel part of a global space, that they can have um, these engagements with very different traditions and civilizations, that obviously is something that did not exist on anything like that scale uh, before. And I think any, any future certainly would need to retain that and, and, and value that. Um, I think there have also been ways in which um, you know, modern language of rights and, and human dignity um, probably has created some protections for people that did not exist before. And I think we need to be um, very mindful of ways of protecting human dignity as we reaffirm uh, tradition. Um, at the same time, though, I think we do need to be quite uh, careful in thinking about what those gains come from and whether they require the rest of the liberal package um, with them. And there are many elements of the liberal package which actually are not liberatory and actually are quite um, threatening to pluralism and diversity and uh, liberty in, in the long run. Um, this is actually something which I'm uh, addressing in my, my current book project, which will, will ultimately be my fourth book, which is looking at future global political structures, future global constitutional um, structures, because we see the machinery of global governance um, taking shape, um, whether it's supranational experiments like the European Union or United Nations, World Trade Organization, all of this other global institutional machinery that's taking place. And it may seem like a, a kind of rash prediction, but I, I do think that within a couple of generations, this question of what a future world state of sorts would look like is going to become a live political issue around the world. Now, one of the striking things about this global machinery as it's taking shape is it's basically a project of a liberal technocratic new class. And traditionalists, for a variety of reasons, look at this and either they are horrified by it or they want to stand athwart it, stop it, or slow it down. But I think if traditionalists really want to guarantee the kinds of liberties and diversity and pluralism that they value, they need to engage that debate very seriously. They need to think about what kinds of global constitutional structures can protect that for the long haul, because otherwise it will happen anyway. And it's quite possible that a, a liberal, liberal state will actually be more hostile to traditional values than any national state has been um, in the last uh, century. Now, I think that there are some real insights from the traditions in terms of how you can defend liberty and defend pluralism. And in some ways, a scaling up beyond the nation state offers a unique opportunity to enhance liberty by redefining sovereignty. I mean, the modern sovereign state has actually ridden roughshod over many traditional kinds of liberty. And if you think about a global space and unbundling sovereignty in that global uh, space, you actually have a, a unique moment for creatively rethinking uh, what that would, would mean. So I, I think that there are a lot of ways that traditionalists can actually contribute to enhancing liberty or strengthening liberty 
for the long haul. But yes, I, I do want to emphasize that um, I think when we reaffirm tradition, we want to make sure that it's not a suffocating, defensive, insular kind of tradition. Ultimately, tradition is a way or a resource for human flourishing. That includes individual human flourishing of various kinds. It should not be um, a kind of stagnant or ossified version of tradition, which I think a lot of people who are um, perhaps defensive or paranoid about the modern world may retreat to. Hmm. Yeah, one, one strange thing that's happened, you know, zooming out a lot, is if someone told you that over the last 200 years, there would be a great, you know, modern liberational spirit, like modern romantic liberational spirit that took over the whole world, you would expect that the people taken by that spirit would all become different and the world would become very heterogeneous. <laughs> um, but the great, you know, liberation go in every direction. Um, and yet the irony, and I think this is what is at the center of all this, is that it's actually become more homogenous as the liberation has happened. And so in some ways there could be a cause around not necessarily just tradition, but heterogeneity. And by the difference between tradition and heterogeneity, it's heterogeneity includes traditions that are all different, but it also includes people coming up with new differences uh, that, are, that become new traditions that are different than just everyone unifying around, you know, the iPods, Lexuses and nightclub. No, I, I think that's that's definitely uh, quite true, and I think there is a, a homogenizing trend that has happened, particularly over the last couple of generations. And I think that's happened for a number of reasons. One is as you thin out society and thin out the culture, the, the range of resources that are really available in people's experience tends to shrink. So it, it wouldn't be surprising that you'd have this kind of flattening or anemic modern culture which emerges. I think there are also structural aspects to this. I mean, if you think about um, you know, people in positions of influence and in educated people today, I mean, how many of them did not go to a modern university? Right? I mean, there's various kinds of ways of describing this, whether it's the, the credential society or the, the cognitive elite or the organization kids and so on, but basically the top tenth or so of societies around the world goes through a sieving mechanism of education and social is eerily similar across societies. Um, and everywhere, I think, among this problem, we see a trend towards you know, hierarchy, conformity, risk aversion, comfort with authority. We see the, the, the grandchildren of countercultural liberals in, in the West admiring the technocrats in Asia. We see the grandchildren of Maoist revolutionaries joining the global investor class. So that there is this kind of global convergence because of common experience among people holding positions of power, which is quite alarming in any world historical um, sense. And I think one of the things we need to think about when imagining a future global space, global order, is how can we fragment power again, right? How can we create you know, what anthropologists and historians sometimes call heterarchy as the opposite of hierarchy, right? The idea that there are different bases of social power, different bases of esteem that people can aspire to, different channels of upward mobility. I think it's that kind of heterarchy, that kind of diversity or fragmentation of power, which is a crucial precondition of liberty in the long run. And that's something that we've lost in 
modern societies over the last um, century, uh, for the most part. So there is, a, I think, a social dimension to this, which is very important and doesn't give nearly enough attention. I mean, that, that kind of convergence across, you know, across societies of, of elites is also, um, I think, one of the reasons that simply trying to recover or reaffirm national sovereignty is not a very effective tool for liberty and pluralism. If the kind of people who are holding mm -hmm. power in each country are very similar to each other, you're essentially replicating the same kind of, of, of toxic dynamic in each of these political spaces. So whether you're centralizing or decentralizing, whether it's the European Union or the UN, or whether it's you know, national you know, nation states with the same kinds of people in power within them, scale alone is not going to do it. I think you need to have a much more um, creative rethinking of how we can recover some insights from the past about what pluralism means and what its social and political preconditions are. Adam, in, uh, in your first book, you, you write, we must capture the world state project and turn it to our own ends, namely the triple partnership as a metaphysical vision. Bearers of the three robust ethoses must seize and remake the global political order, order as a matter of self-defense. And you go on to explain that this is a project to create a unified political culture built on a synthesis of civilizations, not just reading texts, but rather identifying communities of practice, merging the remnants of several defunct civilizations into one living one, a kind of renaissance of Confucianism, Hinduism, Islam, original Europe, and um, so on. Uh, for that to happen, you, you also explain uh, in Deep Cosmopolis, we need, um, I think we'll need the fourth order of universalism, right? I wonder if you could explain what first order, second order, third order universalism might mean. Okay, I'll, I'll try to do justice to that. There's a lot of different layers and concepts that you just, yeah. just mentioned in your question. Um, the, the point about a, a, a partnership of ethos is, goes back to, you know, in, in the first book, Beyond the Global Culture War, I was saying that you know, atomism, which underlies modern liberalism, is one of these four ethoses or self-understandings that cuts across time and space. Um, if you're looking for an alternative to that, essentially the building blocks are the other three ethoses. So democraticism, perfectionism, and, and virtuocracy. And we find, you know, within the traditions, you know, robust um, uh, expressions of what those self-understandings are, how you cultivate virtue within them, what kinds of practices can sustain them, and, and so on. So the triple partnership I'm referring to is essentially a partnership among the, the three non-atomist ethoses. So demots who value small local communities, perfectionists who value certain kinds of individual cultivation, and virtuocrats who are combining virtue and a, a, a social mission. That's a kind of abstract way of thinking about um, what other social forces need to get together to, to balance liberal, liberal atomism. Um, in, in Deep Cosmopolis, I'm talking about how if you're trying to compete with global liberalism within the same global space, you need to find these points of contact among traditions. Now, I think one of the most promising points of contact that we've seen in pre-modern experience and you know, in, in some examples today is at the level of the virtues, right? When people mm -hmm. see people who come from other civilizations, from other traditions, and they try and find common ground and they see something to respect, very often what they're respecting is the kind of virtues that people display, right? It's the kind of self-understanding that their counterparts 
um, have. And this is something that Matteo Ricci, the Jesuit missionary who went to China in the 1500s, saw in the Confucian literati that he was engaging with. It was much the same way that you know, Christians in the Middle Ages could respect the ancient Greek and, and Roman virtues in the same way he could see something in Confucianism at a personal level that could, could resonate um, across that, that divide. So, so yes, I think that if we are um, looking for what can inspire and flesh out a non-liberal global space, it is that dialogue among traditions and it is that common ground at the level of virtue. Um, and given that the traditions are often saying somewhat parallel things uh, about virtue, um, that again is something which I think becomes a, a resource, it becomes a reason for people to learn about other civilizations, it becomes a, uh, a basis for common ground among people who are trying to make common cause politically and socially a lot across a host of, of issues. Um, that is a sort of civilizational level. When I'm talking about you know, creating a kind of common layer of civilization across traditions, that's what I'm, I'm getting at. At the same time, though, I want to emphasize that not about creating a new homogenized elite which is going to hold power globally. Right? That is a, a, a layer of, of, of common culture. It's a layer of common reference points um, that people in influence, I think, globally need to, to have. At the same time, I think we should make sure that any future global um, order, any future global constitutional structure also fragments power in very um, important ways. Um, I, I do not want to see a situation where the world is governed by a tightly wound, unified class mm -hmm. of tradition as any more than I want to see a future world order that is governed by liberal technocrats of a certain type either. Mm -hmm. I think we need to make sure that there is pluralism of, of kinds, not only across traditions, but also among different layers, different walks of life and so on. I think there should be a place for rural people living in small communities. I think there should be a place for mystics. I think there should be a place for mandarins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you know, discussing the, the conceptual side of your writing is a bit of a disservice to the audience here because I, I love the richness of the examples. You mentioned Matteo Ricci, a figure um, not much known to people. Um, I was struck, for example, in, with the sort of uh, snapshots of three Indian figures that we might just mention briefly as examples of three different approaches to modernity and that would be Gandhi, Nehru, and Tagore. I wonder if you might just briefly contrast those in, in your way of thinking. Yes, um, I mean, Gandhi, Nehru, and, and Tagore were um, examples I, I was using in telling this story about you know, the, the rise of modern liberalism and how in, in an Indian context in, in the 20th century, some of these clashing visions and self-understandings were, were playing out. Um, I mean, Tagore, um, of these three was the one that I, um, I think I'm the most sympathetic to. He represented a kind of creative um, high culture. It came out of a, a kind of mystical or Brahminical tradition in, in India. Um, he was very much a cosmopolitan. He was the first Asian to win a Nobel Prize in literature. He took a deep interest in, in, in Western and, and other civilizations. And I think he, he felt that he was part of a kind of emerging inter-civilizational uh, space. Um, Nehru, on the other hand, was you know, very much a modernizing national figure, came out of a kind of a liberal social democratic technocratic tradition. Um, the way that he wanted to 
define Indian identity after independence was in some ways very similar to post-war you know, welfare states and national projects in the West. The idea that it's a flattening, homogenizing project, that it cuts down the old high cultures, it cuts down local diversity, it, it binds everybody into this national narrative of, of modernizing um, progress. Um, Gandhi was, was representing a kind of demotic or popular alternative. It was much more localist. Um, it was not particularly sympathetic to the, the high culture you know, aspects of Indian uh, tradition either. Um, it was, I think, much simpler and more localist in scale. I think many people on Front Porch Republic would see a lot of points of contact with Gandhi's. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In a sense, both Tagore and Gandhi were, were responding to liberal modernity in very different directions, one from a high culture cosmopolitan perspective, one from a more popular or communitarian um, angle. Neither of those obviously ended up defining, d- defining modern India's national identity. This came instead out of Nehru's uh, uh, narrative, as it were. But this is just an example of how you can see you know, thinkers and social movements in these different contexts and how they are working with certain self-understandings, they're working with certain social and cultural forces, and they imply very different visions of what a country's future or the world's future would, would be. Yeah. Um, let's see, you're working on a new book and I want to get to that. Um, the, uh, the uh, A project around a world constitution, which is a kind of dizzying idea to start with. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it often tends to unsettle people. I think probably most of the time, <laughs> if I tell anyone of a traditionalist fan that I'm I'm writing about future global. They tend to get a little. You must be the on. only traditionalist enthusiast in the entire world that's unique. excited about a global Literally constitution. Unique. Yep. Well, I think they tend to get a little alarmed about it. They tend to look at me slightly suspiciously and ask, "Well, what side are you actually on?" Right. <laughs> but I think if you look back at you know various currents of pre-modern political thought, there is. Um, a strand that is thinking about large-scale political order in various ways. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, regional world empires historically, which are, you know, have been much larger than the nation state and have been thinking in terms of broad, open civilizational um, spaces with a lot of diversity within them, but still not, you know, partitioned in the way that modern nation states are. So I think there is a pre-modern tradition of political thought, which, um, definitely does take up this issue of cosmopolitan uh, governance. Um, as I said earlier, I think one of the, the problems with um, this global machinery emerging is that it is basically the new class that is defining it. But if you look, think of the European Union being, I think for many people, the forerunner of uh, some future global political structure, it is essentially the creation of international lawyers, bureaucrats, economists, people who come out of a fairly narrow background and range of of assumptions. Um, Mm. So it certainly makes sense why a lot of traditionalists would look at these supranational projects and think that it's not the cup of tea, that it's something to stop or something to avoid. And if you can't stop it or avoid it, at least try not to think about it for as long as you, you can. But I think certainly within, by the end of this century, this is going to become a, a live political issue that traditionalists need to engage with. Because if they don't come up with alternative ways of thinking about what those future global structures should look like, then the new class essentially is going to make the decision mm-hmm. for them. And mm-hmm. it runs the risk of being 
even more hostile to traditions, even more hostile to pluralism than any modern nation state um, has been. So yes, I, I probably am a, a lone voice crying in the traditionalist wilderness about this now, but I think it's a conversation <laughs> that people will have to engage even as, even if only because experience and, and events will force it upon us. Mm -hmm. um, we're coming towards the end, so Elias might have more questions, but um, my final one is, are there figures, politicians, writers, public intellectuals that are thinking in the way that you're thinking uh, that give you hope about uh, uh, the growth of this, uh, this way of viewing, this uh, unorthodox way of viewing the world? Um, I think there are people writing about specific aspects of each of these problems. Um, what, what I'm trying to do in my work, in a sense, is to pull some of these different streams together and to um, think about them in a certain kind of comprehensive way. So I, I, I do you know, engage with different currents of literature that um, I think where people don't really speak to each other at all. I mean, even in my own sort of personal context with people, if one looks at my Facebook feed, I, I'm often struck by how I see postings from people who probably would never even think about speaking to each other, even though they're often responding to maybe some common challenges or these common, common issues. Um, I, I think that there are, I mean, just to take one example for the, um, the, the World Constitution uh, Project, I mean, if we're thinking about ways of defending pluralism and fragmenting power, there's a very rich uh, current of literature coming out of um, Abraham Kuyper and Herman Duyevert's Fair Sovereignty, um, which is a kind of, um, uh, it's similar to subsidiarity, comes out of Dutch Calvinist thought in the early 20th century, and essentially is making the argument that, you know, alongside the state and the market, you have, you know, family, religious institutions, local communities, civil society, all of these different spheres of life, which by their nature require a certain autonomy, by their nature cannot be subsumed within, you know, a capitalist market economy or a modern liberal um, state or the like. So I think that there are traditions of political thought and there are debates and conversations going on um, out there that I um, find quite useful and I, I try to engage in various ways. Um, but I, I do hope that some of these different currents can engage more with one another because ultimately we are operating in a common space and we are facing common challenges even if we may have different toolkits for approaching it. And, and this would apply across different parts of the world as well. I think one of traditionalists' greatest um, shortcomings or, or vulnerabilities at the moment is that they don't speak enough across civilizations. You see some attempts at interreligious dialogue and, and things like that, but it's, it's pretty marginal. And you know, given that we are operating in a common global space, I think those conversations need to happen across space as well, not only across different um, interests or themes or um, approaches. Hmm. You know, I noticed, um, Adam, you're writing that what's needed here uh, among the first steps is a curriculum of deep cosmopolitanism, bringing together authors like uh, Cicero, Shunshi, Al-Farabi, and others, not as heritage or collective possessions, but as bearers of placeless and overlapping insights. Um, that sounds like a publishing project, and, and my, my radar at Solidarity Hall went up uh, right away as I was reading that. So if we can be helpful in some ways with that dimension 
uh, of the project that would be um, uh, terrific and of great interest. Yeah, I, I think that there are um, you know curricular ways of doing this as well. I mean, the, the the point I was making there was that you know when people want to engage with the classics, with the so-called great books, they're often doing this as cultural patrimony rather than as a yep. source of timeless and placeless insights. Um, so I mean, in, in the West, for example, we see a lot of people who are very enthusiastic about the classics and the great books, but don't have any particular desire to engage the great books of other. Um, exactly. So this, I think, is a shortcoming. Outside the West, it's even more striking, perhaps for obvious reasons that people get more defensive or they feel more vulnerable, so therefore they want to retreat into their own tradition and, and emphasize its value and how it's distinct from the West. But those kinds of conversations become very self-limiting or stagnant if all you're doing is affirming how you're different rather than participating in a common conversation. So I think that anyone who is uh, among your listeners who are you know, teaching courses at universities, dealing with political, social thought, and so on, if there are ways of you know, drawing on works from different traditions and different civilizations and bringing them together with each other, ways in which they're tackling parallel issues in, in different or similar ways. I think those are very fruitful conversations to, to have. Yeah, that's marvelous, a marvelous project. You know, given that you're in uh, Nanjing and um, everything about China in the news, uh, I can scarcely forbear asking you for uh, some quick thoughts on um, the, the China question today, whatever that... <laughs> I mean, the China question. It's a big, big question. Yeah. Uh, I, honestly, <laughs> these are, of course, my, my views as Adam Webb rather than my views as co-director of the Hopkins Nanjing. Fair, uh, fair enough. Fair this enough. Is a, a unique kind of institution. Um, well, the, the China question. I, I think there are a lot of levels to this. I mean, one is you know, making sense of the rise of China and what the the current Chinese government's vision for the world is and how. You know, people of a traditionalist or pluralist bent might respond to it. Um, I think um, anyone looking at mainstream Chinese elite opinions agenda for the world should be quite unsettled. It's certainly not pluralist or cosmopolitan. Um, it's not pluralist in the sense that it comes out of a uh, very modern understanding of the state as dominating society and in a way sealing off different societies from each other. Mm -hmm. um, I think also anyone who is concerned about cultural diversity and cosmopolitanism should be quite unsettled by the frankly xenophobic strand of thinking in a lot of modern Chinese uh, nationalism. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is for all of the um, things that come out of the mouths of Trump supporters and Brexiteers and so on about foreigners and, and national identity and so on, um, some of them pale in comparison compared to the kind of stuff that appears on the Chinese internet and the Chinese uh, media. Um, I've often thought that if some of the comments of Chinese netizens on the internet about Africa could be translated into African languages, it would probably erode Chinese soft power for a generation. I think there is a a strongly xenophobic strand of, um, strand of Chinese nationalism there that should be unsettling. But at the same time, I think that there are countervailing currents in Chinese society. I think there has been tremendous change. I think in many ways, China has become a more open society at a, at a non-political level in terms of interactions among people and, and the, the horizons of educated people in China um, expanding as well. So I think that there are different versions of China and different 
um, ways in which China and Chinese people can engage with a, a, a global uh, future. Um, but yes, I think we are you know, in a time when a lot of these forces are um, clashing with each other and a lot of the stuff that one sees on the surface may not be very representative of what China's future is likely to be. Hmm. I see, very good, very good. Wonderful. Uh, Adam, what, what wonderful work, what uh, mind-expanding uh, stuff you have been up to. I hope that we can uh, keep in touch with you, uh, update our readers about your work, um, and just continue the conversation uh, generally. Definitely. Thank you very much for, for having me. This is uh, it's definitely a fascinating conversation to have, and uh, certainly the stuff that I've seen of what you've what you've been doing with Solidarity Hall and these these other ventures. It's uh, it's very heartening to see, and I think that there are some uh, very promising networks of people taking shape. But, ah, good. Yes. Uh, I hope to be be part of that and to to engage in a lot more conversation about this as we move forward. Lovely. That would be great. Thank Keith, you, Adam. Thanks.